and suddenly because of social media there were no barriers anymore and we could all see it so for me social media was where I found other young black people who were um struggling with depression and anxiety who were having eating disorders who were having psychotic illnesses who had been in mental health units and had come out people who were working as doctors with mental health problems people who were having faith crises or weren't sure which country they want to live in suddenly the world was open to all these people and you could talk to any of them Hello and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Sachandrika Chakrabarti and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has revolutionised work. Each week I'll speak to someone working in a creative field and ask them how their industry has moved from an analogue to a digital age or how the internet has invented their job. If you like what we're talking about in the podcast, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at FreelancePod. On Twitter is at freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. So getting in right at the end of Mental Health Awareness Week, I speak to Dr. Samara Linton about her book, The Colour of Madness. Samara put the book together with her school friend, Rihanna Walcott. They use social media to find people of black and ethnic minority backgrounds living in the UK and also abroad who have stories around mental health, mental illness and dealing with mental health services. Samara talks about why she's interested in this subject, how positive a force she has found social media when dealing with mental health issues um, and how it can also be negative and also why if you really want diversity inclusion and representation you have to go and look for people and she gives us great details on on how she did that for the book well it's one of those things i think i'm like the 1.5 generation (laughs) i was reading about it and that i moved to the uk when i was seven so yeah, I have, you know, parents who are first generation and technically I'm first generation. But a lot of my experiences have been similar to friends who are second generation migrants. So my experience has been shaped a little bit by um, growing up in Jamaica. Um, but largely most of my formative experiences have been here in the UK. So The Colour of Madness is an anthology exploring Black, Asian and minority ethnic mental health in the UK. So we have over 50 contributors um, who've submitted stories, essays, art, poetry, um, all exploring an aspect of mental health. So either their own mental health, that of a close family or um, relative. We've got mental health professionals talking about what it's like to be a person of colour working in mental health in the UK. Um, and yeah, so I edited it alongside um, a friend, Rihanna Walcott. She's a PhD student um, in London at the moment. And she's also a black woman with her own experiences of mental health problems. And when we were putting the book together, we were very conscious of the fact that this wasn't just a book about um, black women's mental health. 
and um, because even though that was our own story we wanted to make sure that lots of other stories were represented as well um i think part of the reason why we did that was just because we knew there were so many other people who felt the way we did and that they just didn't feel that there were stories out there that reflected them so i guess if i kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about how the book came about um Rihanna had been speaking at a conference in Edinburgh and just ended up on this panel speaking about creativity and mental health and how that had impacted her life as a black woman. Um, and at the end of the panel, um, um, a publisher called Tabby Sterling approached her and said, you know, I really, I really enjoyed what you had to say. I felt like you wanted to hear more of it. It's something that you know, we kind of acknowledge that, you know, ethnicity and gender can play into mental health, but it's not something we're very good at talking about. And together they kind of had this idea of how about we do some sort of collection of stories exploring that a little bit. Um, and Rihanna was interested, but didn't feel at the time that she was kind of the person to lead the project. And she gave me a ring, she just phoned me out of the blue, um, because we'd known each other a little bit at school and we went to the same school, but we weren't really ever in the same class or in close friendship groups, but she'd kind of seen me talking about mental health online, basically. Um, so she gave me a ring and told me about this project, and she said, you'd be interested. Um, and yeah, I guess fast forward a month later, we both decided to just do it together. <laughs> and um, together we decided, you know, what we wanted the book to focus on. We got a focus group together and explored themes and titles and ideas. and it all kind of yeah it just came together very naturally it turned out there were actually a lot of people in the uk very desperate to contribute to something like this and to tell their own story and to share their experiences and yeah i don't know i think maybe it was just my own frustration that this hadn't been done already or just me feeling a bit restless but i agreed to it um and this was when i was in my final year of university. So it was um, final year of medical school and I just agreed to edit a book. <laughs> so looking back, probably not the wisest decision I've ever made, um, but definitely worthwhile. And it was a kind of whirlwind of an experience because I, Rihanna had had some experience in publishing, like she'd done kind of internships. Um, but for me, I'd had no experience with publishing and the whole process of putting a book together, raising money for a book, getting interest, like marketing it afterwards was completely foreign to me. Um, and when I signed up, I kind of hadn't really thought about those aspects of it. I just thought I can, people will send me work and I'll have to make sure it's like readable. <laughs> and that was what I thought I'd be doing. Um, and in the end, actually, Rihanna and I took on a really big kind of creative role and, you know, crafted the vision for this book. And it was very important to us that it was led by, um, people of colour with mental health issues because we wanted a story that we were putting out there to be told by the people who were most affected by it and our publisher um, was a she's a white woman and she was also um, we had this discussion with her about what role she would have in the book and kind of which voices we were going to put forward and we kind of agreed that you know obviously she's publishing it and she's funding it but we wanted to make sure that kind of the creative vision and the drive and the decisions being made were being led by the people who this book is supposed to be for and who it's supposed to be about. And that was one of the big things that prompted us to make this focus group um, so that it wouldn't just be our own ideas, that it'd be kind of as 
inclusive as possible of the audience um, and yeah the audience that we wanted this book to reach and who we wanted it to be for um, so we kind of created a Facebook group quite early on and then we just advertised it through Facebook through kind of various Facebook groups that we were parts of um, online on Twitter and people just requested to join um, it was all a bit haphazard but somehow it spread and people were interested and we ended up with very quickly over 100 people in the group um, who were all kind of willing to contribute their ideas and to say yes or no to things we suggested and it was it was great so from, from the beginning it was a very collaborative effort um, and yeah we're very proud of that. In the focus groups um, people weren't very open about their own experiences um, but we did see that a lot of people from the focus groups ended up submitting work so <laughs> clearly there was the interest was there but I think people still very cautious about how open they are about their mental health um, in public spaces um, and we found actually a lot of people who submitted work it was their first time ever kind of writing about or sharing work that they had done about their own experiences and a lot of people said that in the submissions that like, this is my first time doing this and you know there was a lot of anxiety around it a lot of people kind of asked you know can we can I have a pseudonym can this be anonymous you know they're talking about things they just haven't spoken about before and um, so I feel that the submission process because we just used um, submittable like an online platform it allowed for a bit more anonymity and it allowed for us to kind of maintain that confidentiality which you don't get with you know a Facebook group or a Twitter thread um, but you can get through these other platforms so I feel like we use social media a lot to kind of reach out but then people communicated with us through more private platforms um, which is like completely understandable and I think it's it's part of why we got so many contributions from voices you don't typically hear because we were able to kind of maintain that confidentiality and so many of the contributors in this book have used pseudonyms and so many of them have changed um, parts of their stories and um, to kind of preserve their own privacy um, and because of the nature of the things that they're talking about, the nature of their experiences, they're talking about trauma, they're talking about family, they're talking about relationships. And, you know, it's very, very difficult for people. So even though they're very silent in the Facebook groups, silent online, um, they had this now platform to share their experiences um, and they really took advantage of that. So that was really great. It was more about what do you want this book to be? So even like a very basic example, when we're choosing the title of the book, we just started a thread of people could suggest ideas in the title. And then we picked a few that we liked and we got people just to vote on them. So it was kind of kind of a general collaborative effort around what we wanted the book to be. In terms of the content, that was um, very much Rihanna and I kind of took on that editorial role and were very selective about the content that we wanted to be included. Um, and we, we sat down and we talked for a long time actually about what it is we were going to include, what we weren't going to include, what was our criteria. Um, and I think it's quite difficult for us because both of us are quite academic. Um, she's you know doing her PhD, I'm now a doctor, and it's very easy to make something like this an academic venture um, and to you know only choose the most polished, the most well-researched submissions. Um, and you know, we just realised actually, you know what, we, that is just not representative of people of colour in the UK. Um, a lot of people with mental health issues aren't necessarily going to be able to 
communicate verbally in the way that we would want them to communicate, but it's important that their words are still here. Um, and so I think we is the submission process is very so difficult because we end up rejecting and um, so many brilliant, brilliant pieces and so many really well written, really interesting, really thorough pieces because we wanted to make room for the maybe the less well crafted pieces, but that was still very true and very representative of you know the people who were writing about. So. Yeah, we did get quite a few academic submissions and we only really included a handful of them. We've got a few submissions of people who work as mental health professionals, medical professionals. And again, we have a few of them um, in the book. But on the whole, most of the submissions are from people who um, have had mental health problems and the range of them as well. Because, you know, often mental health conversations are very much limited to depression and anxiety. Um, And they are the most common ones. So that's understandable. But actually even within that the mental health umbrella, there is still this hierarchy and there's this, still this layers of privilege when it comes to acceptable mental health problems and which ones aren't acceptable. So we made sure that we wanted to include experiences of, you know, of psychosis, or we wanted to ex- include experiences of you know, suicidal ideation, positive experiences of the mental health system, really negative experiences of the mental health system. Um, we wanted to include you know, obsessive compulsive kind of difficulties and eating yeah, we just we wanted to cook as much as possible and I think it's quite hard um, sometimes because obviously you're asking people to share a part of themselves and a lot of people submitted and then afterwards they changed their minds and thought actually no I don't really want to say this and that's kind of this conversation we have to have with them as editors about you know how can we present your work in a way that's true to you but that's also protects you and kind of respects your yeah respects you and your people around you um so I think it was, yeah, so in the focus group, it was more about the vision of the book, but then with each individual contributor, we had to have that kind of discussion about how we were going to tell their story or present their work. I guess one thing that the book does show is that the there's this huge diversity of experience. So from really, really positive, kind of like gold standard experiences that you want people to be like, I felt unwell, I told my family, they were really understanding. I got help. It was great. And now I'm better. So the complete other end of the spectrum where you see some actual real failures of mental health systems. You see some real failures of people who are supposed to be there for you and actually just really devastating stories in which you struggle to find any kind of hope at all. And um, so when we talk about, you know, the BAME or the POC experience of mental health, we have to acknowledge that that there isn't one if that makes sense there's no single story and I think that's the main takeaway from this anthology and I think you do see differences in terms of the submissions by people from African or Caribbean backgrounds or submissions people from um, people from Indian or South Asian backgrounds because in terms of the way in which they describe their particular barriers or their particular um, difficulties it does vary a lot and I think there's always that criticism to be had about lumping everyone together under BAME or POC. And um, we do try to acknowledge that. So in our introduction, we talk about why we decided to go with these terms, even though we know that, you know, they refer to that the global majority um, that actually these people from, you know, Black, Asian, minority backgrounds make up the vast majority of the, of the globe. And um, 
putting all their experiences together and trying to say something about them is a near impossible task. Um, but what we can say that there, there is a common thread that runs through most of the experiences in this book. And I think that common thread, I think one of them is just the concept of being other, um, of having ideas of what normal is and what other is. And I think especially if you are from a, a migrant background, a migrant family, um, we all kind of have this experience of feeling that we aren't quite the norm or we don't quite fit or that we're different and we somehow need to change ourselves and make ourselves into what we are supposed to be, whether that's what our parents or cultures expect of us or whether that's what our schools expect of us or what British society expects of us. And it's like this idea of normal versus other. And so when you bring mental health into the picture, then that's usually exaggerated because then there's the idea of what's a normal mind and what's a normal experience and for many people their mental health problems they don't see them as problems um and actually we have labeled them as problems and we've labeled them as pathological and something that needs to be fixed and changed and so in the book you do see kind of this you see, you see a lot of criticism of these labels and the way in which we pathologize people's experiences because if someone for example has um if someone's walking down the street and they you know, someone attacks them and is using racial slurs and it's a racist attack. And now this person is having flashbacks and nightmares and sweats whenever they see a group of people who look like that. You know, we might label that um, anxiety or PTSD, whereas actually that's probably just a very normal response to having experienced a racist attack. Um, and you see a lot of that in the book of what actually are very normal experiences for a lot of people of colour um end up being pathologized then because we don't understand them and we don't understand necessarily the for example the difficulties of being between two cultures or being between two worlds or speaking two languages or you know having two different ideas of what's beautiful or two different ideas of what's successful or what's to be valued and what that can do to your mental state and those things which can be actually very normal experiences for a lot of people of color when they interact with majority white institutions and majority white mental health services they are deemed abnormal and other and that can be a very painful and isolating experience for people and it can also be very damaging it can mean that people are wrongly pathologized and people are you know forced to change something about themselves when actually what needs changing is the society around them and um, what needs changing is the the traumas, the things that cause the trauma, the things that cause them to suffer in this way. So, yeah, I guess there's that thread of what's normal and what's other that runs through it. Um, and also, I guess a big thing that we see is um, people talk about their experiences interacting with mental health professionals. Um, and mental health professionals on the whole um, tend to be from white middle-class backgrounds. Um, so naturally that kind of can create a, a sense of distance um, between you if you're sitting in the patient seat um, and the person who's sitting opposite you. And that feeling of being misunderstood, um, of either being boxed into stereotypes about what it means to be a I don't know, South Asian woman or what it means to be a black man. Um, none of us are immune from those stereotypes. And none of us are immune to implicit bias. And I think often... You know, if you're a psychotherapist or if you're a doctor, if you're a person in that position of 
supposed to be helping someone, you bring with you those stereotypes and you bring with you those preconceptions and they affect the interaction that you have with the person in front of you. I guess one of the ones that I recognise earliest, and that's just because I guess of my kind of the community I'm in, is that so many black people find that when they engage with services, whether it's mental health services, education, healthcare, whatever it is, there's always this stereotype um, of um, them being seen as aggressive um, or them being seen as a threat. And I feel like any any black girl you talk to can tell you about an experience of, you know, them someone telling her that she's like this angry black woman or interpreting her emotion as something to be feared or something to be you know backed away from and if you then put that in a mental health setting that can be really dangerous um because unfortunately um psychiatry and the world of mental health still is very fear-based and you know if someone is seen as aggressive or threatening that can have huge impacts on the kind of care they receive so you know the statistics have continuously shown that black people are more likely to be forcibly sectioned they're more likely to be forcibly medicated they're more likely to be put in seclusion than people from other ethnic groups, um, especially um, black men. Um, the idea of black men being dangerous, it's, you know, it's existed for as long as we can think of in the UK. And that plays out really obviously in the mental health world. And I think a lot of, I can't remember which um, academic it is. I think it's Frank Heating breaking the cycles of fear where he says that, you know, mental health professionals will doctors, whoever, they think of you know, black men as being threatening and aggressive. So they, the way in which they interact with them is then more, you know, it's more defensive, it's more aggressive as well because they're preempting this aggression that's going to come to them. And then as a result, then, you know, the black patient, the black man is then, he's more fearful because he's been treated more harshly than the people around him. And he's more angry now because he's, you know, this injustice that's happening. And there's a cycle that kind of continues because of these previous stereotypes of what it means to be a Batman. So yeah, in terms of the yeah the criminalization of mental health problems and the relationship between the criminal justice system and the mental health system, I think many Black people who've ever been an inpatient mental health unit will be able to share their own personal experience of the way in which criminality has played a role in how they are treated and how they've been perceived. Um, many kind of a, a notorious part of the mental health act um, for many black people and black communities is something called section 136 um, and it's a part of the mental health act that allows for if someone is seen to be in mental distress um, in a public place they should be taken to a place of safety and it allows police officers to take them to a place of safety and up till recently this place of safety has largely been police cells um, so people who are in mental distress, who are acutely unwell, are being essentially arrested and taken to cells and treated like criminals um, before they're then brought to, you know, a mental health unit. And that's just been an ongoing thing. So naturally, people are terrified of being open about their mental health problems because there's this idea you're going to be locked up, um, which unfortunately has been very true for many people. Um, so in, yeah, in the anthology, um, some people do comment on their experience of um, kind of being of interacting with police when they've been unwell and this kind of sense of control and um, force that's used against them. And 
sadly, the way in which we interact with patients, even when they're in a mental health um, setting, often relies on force and control. And, you know, when you forcibly medicate someone um, or put them in a room or put them in seclusion, how different is that from locking them up for, you know, a supposed crime? The actual experience is not very different at all. Um, and yeah, we definitely do, we do see that a lot. And um, a few people do touch on it in the book. But it's very overwhelmingly a black male experience. And we have noticed that even with the contributions and the submissions that came to the book, we didn't have that many black men who submitted. Um, and I reached out to some black men who I knew who had had mental health problems. And I just said, why don't you submit your work? And they just were very, very reluctant to. And I think actually that's something that needs to be explored as well, because we know they are they're vastly overrepresented in the mental health system. Like, for the number of um, black men there are in this country, the num- you know, they're like, I can't remember what the exact number is, but they're like six, seven times more likely to be diagnosed with certain mental health problems, more likely to be diagnosed with um, psychotic illnesses, more likely to be locked up. Yet, when it came to, you know, finding their stories, we really struggled. And, and this is me and Rihanna as two black people. We struggled to find those stories from black men. Um, but we do, interestingly, have um, a couple of um, stories written by mental health professionals and one's one's um, a therapist she was talking about her experience of working as a on a mental health ward and she as a black woman being a person who has to take part in forcibly sedating a patient and she talks about the whole time thinking like am I helping am I helping am I a part of this like system of coercion and control like am I you know am I the oppressor now um because it just it's just it feels often no different to what's been done to um, black bodies by police and by the criminal justice system for decades and even longer um, in the UK. So there is definitely this kind of fear and aggression and criminality that surrounds a lot of black people's experience of interacting with the mental health system. Um, and then you do see it um, sometimes as well with South Asian experiences. So um, one particular writer, um, Dylan Thind, he talks about... Um, you know, he's a South Asian man and he's in a majority white area and he talks about, you know, people referring to him as a terrorist and that kind of being part of how he's being perceived and danger being seen in him in that way. Um, I remember I was even on the training where they, you know, when the I mean, prevent is something we could talk about another time. Um, but they said part of prevent is, you know, looking up people with mental health issues because they're more likely to be radicalised. So if you've got a young Asian male, South Asian male coming in, who, you know, might be quite religious and he's also got mental health problems, the way people perceive him is now filled with um, Islamophobia and threat and fear because now they have this idea of this, you know, young man who's going to be radicalised before they've even spoken to him about what it is that's actually on his mind. So there is that, you know, those stereotypes that, you know, people often say, oh, it's just a joke, it doesn't really matter, blah, blah, blah. I don't think people realise actually the, the real life effects that has on individuals who then have their power taken away from them. And when they're vulnerable, those stereotypes aren't just a joke. They can be a matter of, you know, your freedom. Um, it can be a matter of life and death. It can change how someone interacts with you when you most need their help. Um, we have another writer, um, Priyanka, and her story she talks about, again, a South Asian female and talks about how they perceptions of how they see her as this you know small vulnerable like muslim woman who needs help 
um, needs to be rescued. And, you know, these ideas that play out in the wider society, the effect that that has on the most vulnerable people in society and those of us when we're out are most vulnerable um, are actually really, really significant. So, yeah, you definitely see it. And a lot of people, without even necessarily putting it in those words, saying this happened to me because I am brown and because I'm black, but you read those stories and they're so familiar because you've heard them before and you've heard them before by people who look like them or by people who the world perceives to be part of their group. Um, so those people often ask us, you know, why do you do this book only for and people of colour? Why do you do it for everybody? Everyone has mental health problems, everyone experiences it. So I'm like, yeah, that's true, that's fair. But so far, the mainstream mental health narrative has told those stories. It has told white people's stories. Admittedly, on the whole, they've been white middle class stories, and I think there's a lot of work to be done to kind of move the classism that we have within kind of the mental health narrative that we share. Um, but I can't speak on that experience. I can speak on my experience as a black woman, and I can speak on my experience as someone who's a person of colour. So that's what I have focused on, and that's what you know Rihanna and I are focused on. Um, I think there's definitely scope for people to tell their other stories. Their stories, you know, we need an anthology about. Um, queerness and mental health and how being someone from LGBTQ background has affected their mental health. We need stories on disability and mental health. You know, we need those stories to be told. You know, it's not up to one individual to tell all those stories, but we do need all those stories because to pretend that those things don't affect your experience of mental health, doesn't affect your susceptibility to mental health problems, doesn't affect how likely you are to recover or do well after having a crisis, it would be it would be a lie because the numbers tell us otherwise. And if you listen to people's stories, it'd be very clear that, you know, mental health, it does discriminate. And people always say it doesn't discriminate. One in four of us, anyone can get it. If you look at the numbers, that's not true. One in four in total, but certain groups are more likely to have mental health problems than others. And, you know, you see it in countries where those groups are minorities. So wherever you are a minority, whether that be, a, you know, ethnic minority, gender minority, sexual minority, you're at higher risk of mental health problems. And, you know, that says a lot about the role society has in the mental health of the people who are most marginalised, who are, you know, most most oppressed, really. Yeah. And when people talk about, yeah, mental health and social media, it's so negative and so critical. And yeah, I'm not going to deny that social media can be very, very harmful for people's mental health, especially young people, especially teenagers. Um, like, I am part of the generation that grew up on social media. So by when we were 11 years old and year seven and we're doing our ICT lessons, all of us were getting Facebook accounts. So, like, my entire adolescence is documented online, which I'm sure will come back to haunt me one day. But, you know, we grew up on social media and we grew up in this comparison culture and we grew up in seeing these images of people's lives and yeah, that does, you know, that can do a lot of damage to your mental health. And I think we have to figure out how to use social media in a safe and healthy way. Um, and I don't think we're there yet. But for me, and I think for a lot of my friends, social media was, it saved a lot of us. It helped us see that we were not alone. Um, I think in London, if you, you know, if you're in an area of London where there are actually a lot of minorities and a lot of people who look like you and you can have that sense of community and you can have those, you know, alternate role models and alternate ideas. But if you're in a, you know, if you're in a majority white area or majority white school or, 
you know, if you just if you don't have that exposure to people who are like you, it can be very, very isolating. And I think social media is this great opener to other voices and voices who, you know, might struggle to get on the BBC or struggle to get their book published or struggle to, you know, be a speaker at a main event. They can shout into the void and anyone can access that. And it can that can cause a lot of damage for sure. But actually, it's been a great leveler in many ways because, you know, it's harder to censor. Um, and when and you see it really well, because, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement and um, when it kicked off in the States, the ability to share videos and evidence that wasn't going to be shown on mainstream news, but the fact that we could all access it regardless, um, they gave really great momentum to that movement. Um, and obviously there were the issues of the videos just being very traumatic and, you know, how you, a lot to be said about how you show distress and how you, how do you hold, how do you show a video of someone being killed? Basically, you know, what do we do with that image? But the fact is because of social media, the rest of the world is able to see something that these communities had been saying for decades. They've been saying over and over and over again, this is happening to us, this is happening to us, but it wasn't getting anywhere. And suddenly because of social media, there were no barriers anymore and we could all see it. So for me, social media was where I found other young black people who were um, struggling with depression, anxiety, who were having eating disorders, who were having psychotic illnesses, who had been in mental health units and had come out, people who were working as doctors with mental health problems, people who were having faith crises or weren't sure which country they want to live in. Suddenly the world was open to all these people and you could talk to any of them. You know, you could talk to anyone. They might reply, they might not. But suddenly you weren't limited to your small corner of the world. And you realised that you weren't as other as you thought you were. And actually the world was so much bigger than your immediate surroundings. And even though, you know, you might not, even something as simple as, you know, being a teenage girl, not feeling that you are, you know, pretty. And then suddenly you have social media and you see beautiful people from across the globe and people who embrace that and celebrate that and, haven't grown up with the same insecurity because they've lived in maybe a majority, you know, black um, society, a majority brown society, and you have these alternate images. Even just something as simple as that was, you know, really monumental for me as like a 14, 15 year old. Um, so I think without social media, I mean, this book wouldn't have existed. Without social media, I don't know if I would be as confident in my identity as I am now because I needed other people for me to, I needed to see it before I could believe it and you know I, I think up to that point I hadn't really seen it I hadn't seen those role models I hadn't seen those examples and social media allowed me to see it and it meant that I could believe that it was possible to be me and to celebrate being me and I could find other people who would celebrate with me or who would mourn with me when you know when there was a disaster that happened and no one else seemed to care because it wasn't a European country but I could go online and find the hashtag and find other people who were grieving as well. And we could grieve together. And um, that's, that's so, that's powerful. And um, for many people, it's trivial. I think sometimes for like my parents' generation, their parents' generation, they don't quite understand why we're always on our phones and why we, you know, sometimes sit with our friends on our phones, but we're tapping into this huge community that in many ways, like, changed us um, and have shaped the people who we've become so yeah I don't want to glorify social media because like, it can be very damaging and I've had to take breaks you know I've taken like one month breaks of, of social media I've had to take breaks for my own mental health 
but it has been pivotal in me gaining the perspective of the world that I currently have. My three tips for crowdsourcing or putting together a collection of different stories. I think the first would be to utilize your networks. I think you have to always start with what you know. So for me um, and Rihanna, that was our kind of online community of black women who talked about our struggles and our joys and what we hated and what we loved. And from there, we were managed to amplify our project to the point where we had people from all over the country and many from outside the country also submitting their work to us. But I think it's because we started with what we knew. We built on that. We, you know, you tested the waters there and then we went further out. And I think the the second tip would be to be intentional. Um, if you starting with what you know is important, but you can't stick with what you know. You can't wait for people to come to you and say, well, you know, it was open to everyone and this is what we got. If you're really committed to representation, if you're really committed to diversity, if you're committed to having authentic voices, you have to sometimes go out there and look and dig and find those voices that aren't traditionally heard. Um, and that's just part of the work. That's part of the hustle. That's part of what you have to do um, if you are really committed to telling authentic representative stories. The third tip I would have is to look after your own mental health. It can be very overwhelming to engage with lots of different people online. It can be very overwhelming when you have a target that you're trying to meet and a goal you're trying to meet um, and you're not able to get there. Um, and if you're dealing with even sensitive stories like we were, you know, I was reading a lot of people's trauma, a lot of people's very difficult life stories, and I'm reading it, you know, with a fine tooth comb and really immersing myself in it. And you have to take breaks. You know, you are one person. You cannot, you know, you cannot take on the burdens of the world. And I think the humility um, to do that um, and the wisdom to do that is something that you have to this you have to cultivate. It doesn't come naturally. I think we, a lot of us activists or freelancers or, you know, any, any kind of kind of creative in that way, we're not always very good at acknowledging our own limitations and looking after ourselves. We kind of let our, our project take over and take the lead. But you, unless you look after yourself, you just can't do it justice. And Rihanna and I, like I said, we both had our own mental health problems. And at different stages, we were able to give a lot to the project and other times we just weren't able to but we had to be honest with each other about that and there were some times where she would go off and do the work and there were some times where I would do the work and sometimes we were able to do it together but I think having that humility and having that um, understanding of the fact that we're human <laughs> and you know we are we are valuable and we are important just as much as this work is valuable this work is important meant that we were able to produce something um, that is pretty beautiful and we didn't, you know, <laughs> destroy ourselves in the process. So I think, yeah, be start with what you know, um, build on what you know, be intentional about reaching unheard groups, but always look after yourself. So we are on Twitter at MadnessColorOff or we're on Instagram, Colour of Madness, and Facebook, Colour of Madness. Thanks to Dr. Samara Linton for speaking to me about the Colour of Madness. 
And just because Mental Health Awareness Week 2019 is nearly over, that doesn't mean that we need to stop thinking about the subject. Well, that's it for another episode of Freelance Pod. If you enjoyed what we talked about in this episode, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at Freelance Pod. On Twitter is at Freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod. And you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. That's it for now. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.